and we'll go to the word this morning. Father, as we do this, as we open your word, Father, we're asking that, God, you would open our eyes, our hearts. Lord, that your word would be to us, Father, a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that, God, you would use your truth, Lord, to grow and mold and shape us, Father, into the men and women that you have called us to be. We're praying this morning for our children, Lord, whether they belong to us or not, Lord. Uh, they're a part of this church body. We pray that you'd bless them on the other side of the building, Lord, from, from the youngest on up to the elementary group. We pray, Father, that you would bless and encourage those serving by teaching and leading, God. We pray for your covering over them, and we ask, Father, that you would fill this time now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our message this morning is titled, How Not to Make a Problem Go Away. And we're, we're taking an ambitious chunk of verses. We have to do this periodically in our, our movement through First and Second Samuel because we don't want to be here forever. And uh, I do have a schedule, believe it or not. And uh, Pastor Steve is actually coming back in a few weeks. And so I, I've got to uh, uh, keep up with things. And so this morning, we'll be looking at all of chapter 14 and then the first 12 verses of chapter 15. But it's going to work because a lot of these verses are, are sort of a story that's being told. Where we're at in this book, we're, we're squarely focused now on a season in David's life in which he, he repeatedly experiences failure. Uh, it's not always because he's done the wrong thing. In fact... There'll, there'll be a turnaround here for David shortly, and, and we should remember that the king, he has confessed, he's repented, and he's been forgiven, but his problems are the fallout and result, discipline really, for his having sinned with Bathsheba and, of course, murdered her husband. It's all related to what God had spoken to David through the prophet Nathaniel. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11, he spoke these words, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. Well, despite his being forgiven, David's failure as a husband and father would result in one tragedy after another unfolding in his home, which would in turn affect the nation. And we are seeing that again this morning. The most recent mess David endured is that of his son Amnon by his wife Ahinoam, having arranged to trick Tamar, his half-sister, into being with him alone, at which time he raped her. Terrible. We, we dealt with that chapter last week. Tamar's full brother, Absalom, was so incensed by this and David's refusal to do anything more than simply get angry, well, he then arranged and conspired to have Amnon killed. And after Amnon's murder, Absalom fled to his grandfather's kingdom in Geshur, that's up in the north, uh, beyond Galilee, and he stayed there. He's been there for three full years. Well, chapter 13 closes with these words, and King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. David is conflicted. On one hand, he misses his son, but on the other, he knows Absalom is a problem. 
David's weaknesses have compromised his, his ability to be a good father as well as an effective king, especially so as it relates to this issue, everything that we looked at last week. And so David, rather than than confront Absalom and hold him accountable, rather than deal with this issue, he does nothing. He ignores Absalom. Sometimes we imagine that ignoring a problem will make it away, make it go away, but it doesn't, does it? When I was reading these, these verses and thinking about this this past week, I was remembering a time in my life, not that long ago, but it was, it was at least 10 years. I was a little bit younger and, and very busy and, uh, and uh, kind of poor. And I had developed a habit of not really investing in regular car maintenance, all right? I'm just, I'm not mechanical. I don't do things like that. And I just know to put gas in it and, and go. I mean, years ago, I did used to change my own oil, but um, that's long since passed. But anyhow, there was a time when, when the car that I was driving, it kept having these annoying indicator lights that would come up. You know what those are, right? It's the, just just go away. You're, you're distracting me from getting where I need to go. And it was telling me that my engine uh, was overheating, which apparently that's a problem. And I actually was smelling radiator fluid. It was, it was spraying all over the place. There was a hole. But you know, if you just pour more in there, it'll hang on for a little bit longer. And then I found out there's that, uh, you know, stuff you can pour in that'll find the holes and, and it'll fix it for, you know, a day. And, uh, and the problem went on and on and I kind of kept nursing it along. And then, and then eventually, um, the car died. Ignoring a problem does not help it to go away. David has been grieved over the messes in his family, the breakdown, the heartache. He, he hasn't done anything about it. He's ignored it. The dashboard has been flashing with all kinds of indicator lights, bright red. What he needs to do is confront Absalom directly and hold him accountable. But he doesn't, and this only makes his problems worse. How are you and I called to handle relational problems, conflicts, disagreements, and hurt? We're certainly not called to ignore them. In fact, if we're sinned against, we're to go directly to that person. We're told in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, by Jesus, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. Or if we know that we've offended someone else, we know we're guilty. Matthew 5, 23, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, to your sister, and then come and offer your gift. Only in biblical reconciliation through confession and repentance open and honest acknowledgement of guilt and a decision to turn away from that sin. Can these problems be solved, giving us a place to move forward from? We're going to start in looking at verses 1 through 17, where David is going to be treated to a performance. Verse 1, so Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. 
Joab, the commander of Israel's armies. He knows that the king is bothered by the separation between he and his son. He's torn, David is, between his love as a father and his responsibility to discipline his rebellious son. So he decides, Joab does, to help him out, to help David. Not to mention, or rather, uh, not mention, excuse me, not to mention, that is, that is what I meant to say, Joab is not only concerned about helping the king to reconcile his son, but as commander of the armies and a leading member of David's royal cabinet, you might say, uh, there, there are complexities here to having the heir apparent, the next, at this point, in line to the throne, presently at odds with the king, living elsewhere. And it doesn't, it doesn't bode well for the kingdom or the king for many reasons. So Joab, he wants to resolve this situation. Verse 2, and Joab sent to Tekoa, that's just a few miles to the south, and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel and do not anoint yourself with oil, but act, key word there, like a woman who has been mourning for a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put words in her mouth. So Joab, he, he brings in this actress to attempt to move the king through uh, her one-man show, to, to move David's heart to take action regarding Absalom. We're going to see this, uh, this performance in a moment here. It's as though Joab is trying to manufacture a Nathan moment. Uh, without the spiritual mandate, the way the prophet Nathan confronted David after his sin with Bathsheba. This is sort of a, a fleshly version of that, you might say. Verse 4, And when the, women, the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king, as people would do in those days when there was an unresolved matter. They could appeal and move all the way up to the king himself. The king said to her, what troubles you? She answered, indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now your maidservant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field, and there was no one to part them, but the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant, and they said, deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed, and we will destroy the heir also." So they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave me, excuse me, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. So the tale that this woman spins is that she, a widow, had only two sons who in the course of a fight uh, at which no one was present to intervene, the one killed the other. Now her family wants justice but she'll be left alone. She's asking the king for mercy, for her family line, the name of her husband, to be preserved. So, two sons fighting, no one present to intervene. Now justice is demanded, and the surviving son, who is a victim of sorts in having been alone and without anyone to intervene or to advocate uh, on behalf of and in the midst of the situation, is threatened with also losing his life. And it sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? No doubt, subconsciously, 
The story resonated in David's own heart in regards to his wrestling with Absalom. Clearly it does because we see it in David's response. Verse eight, then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. He's saying, look, I'm gonna think about this. Go home and I'll let you know how it goes. And the woman of Tekoa, she's not satisfied with that. She says to the king, my Lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house and the king and his throne be guiltless. She's saying, look, I'll take responsibility. I just, I need you to decide in my favor. So the king said, whoever says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall not touch you any more. But, but that's still not enough. Verse 11, then she said, please let the king remember the Lord your God and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more lest they destroy my son. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So she says, don't, don't let the one who's lawfully permitted to seek out vengeance and justice, don't let them come after my son. And, and David finally says, look, okay, he's covered, okay? I'm absolving him. He has my protection. So rather than investigate this matter fully, simply David decides in her favor. It's like he's moved emotionally rather than being bothered with consulting the law, which did speak to this pretty clearly. She has successfully tugged on his heartstrings. She's woven this story to closely resemble his own family turmoil. And instead of submitting to justice and law, David allows himself to be manipulated emotionally. Another symptom of his not having dealt with his own problems and conflicts within his life and that of his family. In Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy chapter 19, the law there establishes what were known as cities of refuge. That someone who was guilty of involuntary manslaughter, accidental murder, that they could flee to those cities and be protected from any who would seek their harm. That's not even brought up or, or invoked. Uh, whether or not this son might be innocent or, or if he's not innocent, the not innocent is not addressed. Whether or not he's truly guilty, and that would be an entirely different matter. David, he never speaks to this, and that's a problem because the law was also clear. Exodus 21, verse 12, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. It may be that having received mercy himself, David had a hard time applying this truth to others. Of course, the difference was that in, in David's case, he humbled himself, he grieved over his sin, publicly admitted it, was then forgiven, and then afterwards was submitted to God's discipline. Absalom has done none of these things, but David also hasn't addressed any of this with his son. So this woman's story, it, it touches David's heart. The, the parallel is clear, though inaccurate when you dig down into the details. David, his situation, it's a lot more complicated and nuanced. He's responsible and called to not merely pardon, but to confront and deal with his son thoroughly, confessing to Absalom his own guilt in not dealing with his sister Tamar's assault at the hands of Amnon. 
David's never spoken with Absalom about that failure. Absalom should be held accountable, but so should David. Now this woman presses the king further, verse 12. Therefore the woman said to the king, please let your maidservant speak another word to my lord, the king. And he said, say, she's got her foot in the door, and now she's pushing it open. There's one more thing before you go. Verse 13, so the woman said, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty, in that the king does not bring his banished one home again. Now she hits her target, and David's eyes open a little bit wider. He realizes what's happened. Here's her you-are-the-man moment, to borrow from Nathan earlier. David, why haven't you extended the same mercy to your own son that you've just determined my son should receive, whom you've never even met? And by the way, he doesn't exist. She doesn't say that right now, but verse 14, for we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. Generally speaking, this statement is true. In some ways, it's a beautiful expression of the gospel. But on the other hand, it's not always true categorically for every situation. God does judge and take lives. Were he not to, it would require that he overlook sin, which he does not. And yes, it's true that he makes a way for those banished ones to be redeemed, but that redemption is predicated on humility and repentance on the part of the guilty, their agreement with both God and his law. Those who refuse that prerequisite, they rightly face expulsion from his presence and grace. David is being trapped by his emotions, by his guilt, and by his failure to deal with issues in his own life. He's been painted into a corner. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, the apostle John speaks clearly to this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We cannot pass from, from this life in, into the next and be accepted by God. We, we cannot uh, receive salvation without agreeing with this concept that we have sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's uh, the, Verse 8 is the, is the truth. Verse 9 is the mercy that God affords us through the cross. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Verse 15, now therefore I have come to speak of this thing to my Lord the King because the people have made me afraid and your maidservant said, I will now speak to the King. It may be that the King will perform this request of his maidservant. She, she still is, is spinning her story for the king at this point. Verse 16, for the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. And your maidservant said, the word of my Lord, the king will now be comforting for the angel of God as the angel of God. So is my Lord, the king in discerning good and evil. And may the Lord, your God be with you and seen. All right, she's done. Her, her, the curtain is now going to close, okay? 
she she brings to an end her little you know one woman monologue here for the king and she she wraps it up with some theology a final plea and a little flattery there at the very end cuz that can't hurt right uh, just in case her confrontation didn't go over the way she was hoping. Well, David, once again, weakened by his own past failure and sin, instead of identifying the inconsistencies between her story and plea and his own situation, David capitulates. He, he gives in. And, and now let's look at what happens in verses 18 through 24, a compromise Verse 18, then the king answered and said to the woman, please do not hide anything from me that I ask you. (laughs) And the woman said, please let my lord the king speak. So the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? David's like, yeah, okay, I, I think I see what this is. And the woman answered and said, as you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king, oh, David, you're so smart, right? Uh, from anything the Lord, the, the Lord, the king has spoken for your servant, Joab commanded me. And he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. She says, yes, this is all an act. And she's pointing at Joab and he's over on the side. Hey, David. So it's all been meant to address this issue with Absalom. That's the whole point. David sees it now. Verse 20 to bring about this change of affairs. The woman says, Your servant Joab has done this thing, but my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is on, that is in the earth. And the king said to Joab, all right, I have granted this thing. Go, therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. Then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanking the king and thanked the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, in that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. We're really given the indication in that verse that this is something Joab and David have gone back and forth about. Joab has seen strategically it is a problem to have Absalom back home with his grandfather in in Gesher to the north. And he sees the, 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 the difficulty, the turmoil that it's brought to David. And he has argued again and again, David, you need to reach out to Absalom. You need to bring him back home. And David wasn't ready. And David was angry at Absalom. And he was still grieving Amnon. And, and then he was comforted. And now the time was right. And so he's ready. Verse 23. So Joab arose and went to Gesher and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. Probably not what Joab had in mind, and certainly not what Absalom was looking for. There's several problems here. Joab's heart is in the right place, I, I suppose. He, he, he wanted to help bring about a reunion between David and his son, the presumed heir to the throne. He knows that David's been grieved over Absalom, and so he orchestrates this drama such that David will be forced to apply the lesson to his own life and be compelled to allow for his son's return, and it worked. The problem is that Joab, in in his uh, nice little conspiracy here, has failed to deal with any of the real difficulties 
You ever, you ever have somebody like that in your life? They're trying to get you back together with another person, trying to, you know, mend some grievance, but they're not dealing with any of the real problems. Let's just all be one happy family. Let's just get a little, but we're not talking about what we know we need to talk about. That's what Joab has done. He, he's completely ignored the need for confession, repentance, and actual consequences. That's all been ignored. And sadly, this glossing over all, all of the real and painful issues, it's only going to create more problems and magnify the ones that were already there. Reconciliation without repentance isn't possible, not in God's economy and not in actual practice relationally. Amnon's sin, even though he's dead, isn't being dealt with. We still haven't dealt with his, his assault and violation of his sister Tamar. And neither is Absalom's, frankly. David's failure to deal with any of this in a biblical way as a father or a king is being ignored as well. David has agreed for Absalom to come home and Joab leads him into town as the proverbial elephant in the room. Go stay in that corner, big giant elephant, okay? And, and everything will be okay. It's not gonna be okay. God does make a way for the banished the guilty to return to be redeemed, to borrow the language of the woman from Tekoa. But it's not by overlooking sin. It's, it's by that sin being dealt with at the cross. Their justice can be served so that mercy can also be extended. You see, there all issues of, of guilt and shame and responsibility can be forever dealt with. When I've failed, when I've sinned as a believer, I can go to the cross, I can repent, confess, make it right with whatever people I need to, if it involves others, and I can receive forgiveness because that sin has been dealt with. The blood of Jesus has covered that sin and shame, and I'm able to move forward. Justice has been served so I can receive mercy. At Calvary, Truth and mercy come together in that way. God's law, it's not set aside. It's not ignored. The, the full wrath and consequences of every violation of God's holiness that you and I have committed was dealt with there. So it's not as though we're wandering around today hoping God doesn't see or remember our sin. No, he sees us through the righteousness of his son. He, he sees us through the blood of Jesus, through his perfect sacrifice. Now, of course, in this day and age, in this dispensation, we might say, there was no such allowance, but there were sacrifices, and there was a law that, that needed to and could be adhered to, and there was still mercy. God had extended it to David. The prodigal son can come home, but he's got to agree with the father. He can't come home and pretend as though nothing's been wrong in his life. He can't remain a prodigal and expect to be welcomed. The psalmist wrote in chapter 85, verse 9, Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth have come together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Mercy and truth, righteousness and peace. You cannot have one without the other. So 
Joab is trying to act as a peacemaker, but his peace is without truth. So this effort, it's doomed to failure. But David goes along with it. You'll find that the inadequacy, though, of this process uh, is going to be exposed. It is in his instruction to Joab, verse 24, let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. David says he can come back, but we're not good. He can move a little bit closer to home, but he can't come into my house, and I don't even want to see him. David has not forgiven Absalom uh, beyond that. And before that, he hasn't dealt with any of these difficult issues that we've talked about. Absalom can come back, but as a second-class citizen, he's not welcome in the palace. He's under house arrest, which is only going to serve to further anger and alienate this son who already holds a tremendous grudge and hatred for his neglectful father. David, David previously had been too weak. And now in overcompensating as a dad, he's being too harsh. All the while, still not confronting that which he needs to in order for things to be set right between them. And the situation is now going to get a lot worse. Verses 25 through 33, a demand. Now, in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good works. <laughs> Absalom's home, and, and we just walked by a newsstand, and there on the cover of Jerusalem Weekly is Absalom, you know, striking the GQ smile, looking great. Everybody loves him. He's back, and he is on top. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him, no athlete's foot, no dandruff. Absalom was just great all over, smelled good the whole nine yards. And when he cut the hair of his head, he had, he had great hair too. At the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. And when he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels according to the king's standard, which we believe was roughly in the neighborhood of five pounds. The guy just had hair that, you know, just exploded from his head. He's just got this big, big head of hair. Kind of Fabio, all right? If, if that, I just took myself back to like 1991 or something like that. But anyway, to Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful uh, a beautiful um, a woman, excuse me, of beautiful appearance. And so Absalom had named his daughter after his sister who had suffered so much. Verse 28, and Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but he did not see the king's face. Two years. Absalom and everything that happened has now been ignored by David for five years. Three as he was exiled in Gesher and now two right in Jerusalem. Ignoring problems of this kind, or any, frankly, it doesn't make them go away. They only get worse. And while David's relatively content with this arrangement, Absalom is not. But don't misunderstand. Absalom is not homesick. He has a very different agenda. He wants his father's throne Absalom is ambitious for the kingdom. So frustrated is he with David as a father and a king and so glutted on his own ego that he's going to work to force his advancement to the throne. Verse 29, therefore Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. 
Absalom, he can't leave his house, so he sends a note to Joab and says, I need to see my dad. Figure that out. And again, he's sent again the second time, and he would not come. So Joab had arranged to bring him home, and now Absalom's leaning into that relationship to try to pressure him to gain favor with David that he might come and see him. Verse 30, so he said to his servants, see Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. This guy, he's like, he's pathological. He, he, Absalom's mentality, he's like a, a terrorist. Then Joab came, uh, excuse me, Joab arose and came to Absalom's house, right? His field's been set on fire, and he knows it's Joab or Absalom. And said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom's like, didn't you get my email? Didn't you, I'm sorry, I, you didn't respond when I reached out before, so I thought I would make sure you knew I was trying to get your attention. And Absalom answered Joab, look, I sent to you saying, come here, so that I may send you to the king to say, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. If. Absalom is not acknowledging any guilt. Really, he's saying, I'm not guilty of any crime, so why am I being punished? I am not going to stay here in, in this house prison. I demand to see the king and to be set free. So Joab went to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. That brings us to verses 1 through 12 of chapter 15, where we find a conspiracy. After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. He's already the greatest looking guy in town. And now he's got the best car, you might say. He's got this chariot, but it's not for speed. He's got 50 guys going before him. It's for show. It's to make sure everybody knows who he is and where he is. But that's only the beginning. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. He positioned himself so that he would encounter those who would come there to the gate. This was a place, of course, where business was transacted and sometimes judicial matters were discussed so that he could be there to engage with those people. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. He was, he was a man of the people. Oh, man, what's going on? Oh, you have to go to the king about, where are you from? Tell me a little bit about yourself. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Boy, you, you got quite a case on your hands here. Unfortunately, there's no one to help. The king, he's so busy. Some even speculate that, that the, the, the void that's represented here by Absalom's presence might indicate that David was sick during this time or otherwise weakened so that he was falling behind in certain responsibilities. We're not sure. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made judge in the land and everyone who has any suitor cause would come to me. Then I would give him justice. 
And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. Do you see what's happening? They're coming before him, wanting to honor the king's son, and Absalom picks them up. Oh, come on. We're, we're, we're closer. Just give me a hug. I'm just uh, a common man myself. And in this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. I want to share an abbreviated reading here from Gene Edwards, A Tale of Three Kings, which looks at the progression from Saul to David to Absalom and further forward. It warmed your heart to know a man who saw things so clearly, discerning. Yes, that was the word that described him, discerning. He, he could penetrate the heart of any problem. Men felt secure just being with him. As he discussed problem after problem and solution after solution, men began to long for the day when this one would be their leader. He gave them a sense of hope. But this imposing, insightful man would never deliberately hasten the day of his rule. Of this they were certain. He was far too humble, too respectful of the present leader. Those around him began to feel a little frustrated that they would have to keep waiting for the better days of this man's rule. As the days passed, more and more of them came to listen. Words spread quietly. Here is one who understands and has the answers. The frustrated came. They listened. They asked questions. They received excellent answers and began to hope. He was compassionate. But the wise young man sat quietly and added not a word to these murmurings. He was too noble. And yes... Excuse me, he was too noble, you see. Finally, his followers, which he vowed he did not have, were almost livid. They all wanted to do something about these endless injustices. At last, it seemed, the magnificent young man might concede. At the outset, it was only a word, later a sentence. Men's hearts leaped. Nobility was at last arousing itself to action. But no. He cautioned them not to misunderstand. He was grieved, yes, but he would not speak against those in seats of responsibility. Finally, his righteous anger broke out in cool, controlled words of strength. These things ought not to be. He stood, eyes blazing. If I were in responsibility, this is what I would do. And with these words, the rebellion was ignited. Ignited in all but one, that is. In the noblest and purest man in the room, this man. This was not the case. Rebellion had been in his heart for years. As Absalom fomented this movement against his father, feigning humility and love for the people, seeking to gain the throne. And now the rebellion is birthed. Verse 7. Now it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. And it's likely here that when we read in verse 7 that 40 years had passed, that this is either a scribal error or a misunderstanding of the original. It's more likely that 40 is referring to either Absalom's age or it's been four years that have passed. Probably not 40. Verse 8. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt in Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. 
Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counselor, from his city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew stronger. Strong for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. So Absalom seeks David's permission to offer sacrifice in fulfillment of a vow he allegedly made to the Lord, which he committed to offer should he be allowed to return to Jerusalem. And of course, he has been allowed by David to return to Jerusalem. And so he asked David for permission to go and worship the Lord in gratitude because Absalom, after all, is a man after God's own heart. He'd like to convince people to believe and he wants to do this. He's spiritualizing this. He's seeking to further legitimize it in David's eyes by asking him if he can go. He, he's going to get permission from David. Could, why, how could he possibly have ill motives? But alongside of this worship service, which is anything but, he's arranged for spies to simultaneously travel throughout the land to spread word of his coronation in Hebron, where he happened to be born, so he probably would have a little more support there. And it was also the very place where David was first coronated. So he's following a very carefully laid out path and plan. At the same time, he's invited 200 leading men from Jerusalem to join him in this sacrifice, which David has approved of. They're going to be caught in the middle, probably confused, but their very presence is going to lend credence to everything that's going on. Absalom, he's sacrificing, and he's been proclaimed king. Well, I, I know so-and-so went there and with a whole lot of other people, and, and I'm, being, I'm hearing about it throughout the whole land. It must be that Absalom is now king, that this is right and good. And how could we question Absalom? He, he's, he's just pure of heart, and he loves the land and, and God and his people, and, and he gave me that hug that time, and he listened to my problem. He has carefully strategized and planned this moment. And one guest of honor cannot be forgotten. David's chief advisor, Ahithophel, has come. You might remember Ahithophel from chapter 11. Remember when David sent to a servant and said, who is this woman bathing? Well, this is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, son of Ahithophel. Ahithophel knows exactly what he's doing, as we'll find later. David had committed adultery with his granddaughter, had her husband murdered. He's likely lost respect for David, and he has held a grudge. And so this conspiracy is unfolding. Absalom, he lays aside all pretense and appearance of loyalty to David. He wants the throne. He wants the kingdom. And he will now take it by any means. There's, there's a full coup in force. And David is going to be driven from the palace. It's a dark time for the king and for the nation. Though, <laughs> believe it or not, brighter days are still ahead for David. There are so many guilty parties in this chapter. 
So much undealt with sin that's coming home to roost. But as we conclude, it's good to ask ourselves, how are we, how are you and I guilty of maybe not making problems go away, not dealing with things in a healthy way as we've been called to? And maybe Pastor Frankie and the worship team, you can join me as we prepare to conclude our time together with communion How are you and I guilty of ignoring or covering up our own guilt, delaying dealing with the difficult issues, taking the easier road? God doesn't hesitate to confront our sin and shame head on. He offers mercy, but that requires honesty on our part and confession. And at the cross, we find both. There we find true reconciliation and restoration, as I spoke to earlier. Whereas with David and Absalom, we see this, this false reconciliation. In the gospel, we know that nothing's overlooked, but at the same time, everything's forgotten. Our Father, He doesn't welcome us home, but say, Stay over there. I don't want to see your face. Oh, he welcomes us as the prodigal and, and restores us to full sonship, all rights and privileges for his son's sake. This morning, we're celebrating communion, and our, our passage, I think, has helped us prepare for that. Because we need to examine our own hearts and minds. Are we like Absalom, guilty of justifying and excusing our sin rather than owning it? Some of us, that may be where you're at this morning. Have we chosen not to deal with problems and instead punished those who've offended us, like David? There may be some of you in that place who you've given sort of a, a tacit allowance. You, you can come around, but I'm not really letting this go. There hasn't been true forgiveness. At Calvary, we find no room for self-righteousness, excuses or the covering up of our sin or that of others. There we find only Jesus, crucified in our place, having died for the sins of the world, for my sin. There, justice was served. There we find forgiveness and cleansing. There the banished are called home. But they can't return like Absalom, proud and unwilling to admit any wrongdoing, burning fields and drawing men after themselves. We have to come like the prodigal son, broken, humble, admitting our wrong and God's righteousness. So let's do that this morning as we approach the communion table.